Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change. What is politically possible? Now, it may uh, feel like Congress is weird and nothing happens there these days, but that wasn't always the case. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the time when the federal government outlawed alcohol in the United States and the time it re-legalized alcohol. It's a fascinating bit and may have some lessons for how to think about political change today. And to cover what was going on there, I am joined by Jason Taylor, the Jerry and Felicia Campbell, uh, professor of economics at Central Michigan University, and the author of a great Wall Street Journal op-ed on the 90th anniversary of beer re-legalization. Jason, welcome. Oh, thanks for, for having me here. My uh, pleasure. Why did Congress re-legalize beer 90 years ago? Well, uh, effectively, it was because the economy. They, they thought that uh, the, the, the Great De the Great Depression was uh, was something that that pushed re-legalization into the Overton window. Uh, 1933, we had 25% unemployment, unemployment, and tax revenues were very scarce. And politicians thought, well, you know, maybe we should bring back alcohol because we can it can create a lot of jobs and it could create tax revenue as well. So in, uh, the interesting thing about this is that that the Prohibition Amendment outlawed intoxicating liquors and they left it to the Congress to define what the word intoxicating meant. And the Volstead Act, which was passed after the Prohibition Amendment is passed, defined intoxicating liquors as 0.5% alcohol, anything over 0.5. So it was it was quite easy to legalize beer. All they had to do was just amend the legal definition of intoxicating to allow for more than a half percent. So they, they settled on 3.2% alcohol by weight, uh, sorry, sorry, yeah, alcohol by weight, which is about 4% alcohol by volume. So it's similar to what a light beer, a Bud Light or something like that might be about 4% or so alcohol by volume today. And, and the idea was this would then create a lot of jobs and, and create tax revenue as well. Were they right? Did it produce those uh, positive economic benefits? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, I mean, they may have overstated. Sometimes politicians are, are very good at doing that. You know, they, they may have talked about this could create three million jobs or two million. Jobs. I'm not sure that it created quite that many jobs, but it, it certainly created uh, as an economist, we, we use we use tools to try to back out estimates and so on. And, and they were pretty conservative in, in what we can actually capture in the data. And we estimate that it created about 100,000 jobs between April and July of 1933. 100,000 jobs is, is about, uh, about five or 6% of the total job growth during that time. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's not trivial. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not huge, but it certainly did have a, a, a pretty good economic stimulus. But I think where it really had a big impact was in March and April of 33. This is when the economy was at rock bottom. And when uh, they pushed for beer legalization, uh, immediately breweries started, even before it kicked in in, in April, they were kicking up, uh, you know, they were starting to ramp up production and hiring new workers and buying new trucks and, and ordering more barley. And, and uh, they were put, putting in orders for glass bottles and steel kegs and all these kind of things were happening in, in March and April. And there we see that there's a, there's a pretty big, jump maybe maybe 60,000 jobs in April alone. 
<clears throat> and that's that's about 20% of the total job growth for that for that month. So I think I think beer legalization had a big role in turning the corner. So the depression hits rock bottom in March. Why does it suddenly? I mean, after four years of falling, there's no magic that it's going to start to rise. Why does it start to rise in March and April of 33? And I think beer was a big part of that. Beer legalization is a big part of that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point that um, it's anticipation of a policy change, not just when it officially changes that really matters. Is that people weren't waiting for that uh, for the day that that they were allowed to sell beer. They were trying to make sure that they had beer to sell once it was legal, and that's where the economic effect came in. Right, and and if I could add to that, the the, uh, uh, the Democratic Party and the, the platform for the Democratic Party in the, in 1932, the election was. Uh, it was November 8th that year. Uh, it was one of those times where the Tuesday was the first, so they had to wait till the 8th for the election. Uh, the Democratic Party platform actually called for prohibition reform, called for, for getting rid of prohibition. And when the Democrats won in a landslide, Roosevelt won in a landslide, the Democratic Party in general won in 32 pretty, uh, by pretty big margins. <clears throat> and immediately, the, like the next day, uh, November 9th, uh, like the headlines in many newspapers, uh, you'd think it would say Roosevelt wins in, in landslide. Uh, well, that was one of the headlines, but the bigger banner headline in many newspapers was something like "Nation prepares for beer." <laughs> uh, I'm serious. That's these were these were in, in the in the headlines of, of the United States. If you go back and 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 look at November 9th, 1932, you'll see that that the the banner headlines were, of course, you know, Democrats win election, but just as big or not bigger was, you know, uh, happy days or beer again kind of thing that we're thinking that we're going to legalize beer here very quickly because uh, that now the, the, the Democrats in the platform said they wanted to get rid of prohibition, but that was something that would, would take an amendment. You'd have to get through three quarters of the states would have to approve an amendment. And so and that's going to take time. But this uh, legal definition of intoxicating could be done with a simple vote by the House, the Senate, and then signed by the you know, system, something that they could change through Congress. And uh, they were talking about like, you know, beer by Christmas and things like that. Um, it didn't happen until uh, until the new administration came in that they, they did. But the point is that they were ramping up in terms of, uh, in terms of breweries starting to get, get back on their feet to get ready to, to make beer happened as early as November 9th or November 8th, uh, 1932. So, so by the time that the, when it did legalize, so it did legalize on April 7th, 1933 in 20 states, not every state, because most states had their own prohibitions in place. So they had to get rid of those. And the states were also ramping up starting on November 8th. They were like, we need to get ready for beer. So we need to get rid of our prohibition, amend our prohibition. And 20 states were successful in getting rid of it by April 7th. And then you had uh, you know, a few more in May, a few more in June, a few more in July, and by the end of the year, there were there were 43 states in which 3.2 uh, percent uh, beer was was legal. Yeah. So this is again huge policy shifts because before this period, prohibition is or sorry, alcohol is is the villain of the public. Uh, there's not just federal laws; there's state prohibitions, and state prohibition started before federal uh, federal prohibition. And, it, and alcohol was on the outs; people hated it. And then we outlawed it, and people didn't stop drinking. At least that's the reputation uh, 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 that I have of uh, of what uh, prohibition was. And so, compiled the lack of effectiveness uh, with um, the Great Depression, 
and now it becomes popular to do the exact opposite of what legislators were doing, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so can you tell me, like, how much did that noncompliance really matter to this, uh, this pushback against uh, the prohibition of alcohol? Well, oh, definitely. I mean, there were the people in this very early in the 1920s, there were starting to be pushes for for repeal. But interestingly, even even those early 20 pushes were not necessarily saying we should just get rid of the the amendment and, and bring back you know nothing. They were they were also kind of thinking of more piecemeal. Uh, you know, let's let's. You know, beers and light wines now, saloon never is what it was, it was kind of the slogan. Like, like they were thinking, well, you know, like, why don't we just try to try to get, you know, let's make some incremental change here to try to amend prohibition. Uh, that was early on. Just try to. And of course, that didn't succeed until 1932, 33. But later in the 20s, when when you had the rise of organized crime, and and yes, it was pretty clear. If you, if you look, economists again are good at looking at data and trying to infer things, so what economists have done is looked at things like crime statistics, mortality statistics, health statistics, like uh, cases of, of cirrhosis of the, of the liver, and have estimated that, that alcohol drinking probably went down to about thirty percent of its original level very quickly, like in 1920, 21, 22. But then it rose to about 50 to 70 percent of its of its previous level by the mid 20s and the late 20s. And, you know, by the late 20s, early 30s, it's it's probably about 70 percent of where it was. So there was still there was still pretty rampant uh, drinking. It was, of course, it was all being done illegally. It was was being produced illegal. And that created that created this this whole unintended consequence of uh, organized crime syndicates and and so on that that uh, really. People were not happy with, of course, and, and that's and that was what what helped push for repeal. But again, it was really that that wasn't enough, though. It was the Great Depression, and 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 the idea that we needed to to create employment. That was what really pushed politicians over the edge to eventually vote for the uh, the repeal of allowing beer. Once they allowed beer, you know, it was the next step was was easier than to have full repeal, which happened in December. Of 1933, December 5th, 1933 is when the 36th state, in this case it was Utah, ratified the the constitutional amendment to repeal the previous amendment. Yeah, I think that's an, a really interesting point of just how much effect the law had. As in, we made alcohol illegal, and it did have an effect, but it wasn't to get people to stop drinking entirely. Consumption, you said. Uh, drop down to 30% of what it used to be, and then it turns out to be 70% of what it used to be, which means that it's less less than 50% effective by the time uh, they got rid of it, um, or at least possibly. But I also think that that's interesting for the economic effects, which is if it was like we we did this in part to improve the econ, or we realized in part to re, uh, to improve the economy. But if prohibition wasn't effective at all there wouldn't be any economic improvements because people aren't actually purchasing anymore. Um, uh, so can you, can you talk a little bit about that? It's a, it's a, it's a good, a good question. So, so again, part of it, part of it was also collecting tax revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was, that was another one of the arguments was that if we legalize beer or eventually alcohol, 
we could raise a lot more tax revenue to fund fund the government. Uh, you know, prior to to uh, uh, prohibition, the tax revenues from alcohol were a big part of the state and federal government's uh, revenues. You know, one, one reason why, by the way, and, and now we're kind of getting into why prohibition was enacted, but, and, and I would and I would like to talk about that more. Uh, but, but one thing that made prohibition feasible was the income tax amendment, because without having a source, another source where we could raise, where the federal government could raise tax revenue, uh, you couldn't really have prohibition because so much of the federal tax revenue was collected through alcohol prior to 1914. So then you get the income tax amendment. And this is, in a sense, it's almost a necessary condition to have prohibition is you need to have something like an income tax amendment that gets put in place and makes it more feasible to do that. Uh, so, but one thing I'll add to your to your specific question is with with beer and specifically beer production was was certainly down significantly during prohibition. What we saw, yes, the the level of alcohol consumption fell to maybe fifty to seventy percent, but the the types of alcohol con, that were being consumed changed dramatically. Uh, instead of drinking beer, people were drinking harder liquors because if you're a producer. Uh, and you, you get, you're basically getting money per, per, uh, uh, proof, right? For how much, for how much alcohol you're actually delivering. If you're going to try to make beer that is maybe, you know, 5% or so, um, it's going to be a lot harder to, to deliver a lot of this, uh, you know, pure alcohol in the form of beer. Uh, it, you take, it requires big, heavy vats of equipment and it's, you know, you have to, to carry it. You get the idea that what you really want to do is the higher proof. So what we saw was was these illegal production tended to be in the higher proof beverages, uh, you know, liquors. And, and and so if we legalized beer, this would create a lot of jobs in the beer industry, no doubt, because there wasn't a lot of beer being produced. We can look at that because we can actually look at hops production. So what economists have done here is they've looked at hops production as a proxy for beer production because and the production I of because you can use because, barley for a lot of things, but hops yeah. basically only used for beer. Exactly. So, so, so the, the production of hops fell. I don't don't quote me on this, but I think it was down to like seven percent of its previous level. Let's say ten percent to be conservative here. So, if we use hops as a production uh, as a proxy for production of beer, beer production was down about ninety percent. So, so we so yes, there was alcohol consumption, but it was not beer. So legalizing beer could create jobs in the beer industry feasibly, and it did. Well, let's talk about uh, the the, uh, the drive for prohibition anyway. I mean, this is a long social movement. The temperance thing existed for a long time, and they were really successful. I mean, they got prohibition passed in a lot in most states, and federal legislation passed. Like, how were they successful? Like, what what was going on there? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, you know, they were they were successful, but boy, it took them a long time. So, so, the, so the, the temperance movement, yeah, you know, it's very very interesting and very pertinent, I think, to the Overton window idea that the temperance movement is as old as our country. But by, by the back in the early eighteen hundreds, the temperance movement was not focused on any kind of state or national law. It was focused initially on getting individual people to sign 
temperance pledges. I will not drink alcohol. And by the personal mid- thing, not a political thing. thing that yes, exactly. <clears throat> and so by the mid 1830s, about 12 percent of the population was in a member of a temperance organization and, and was pushing people to sign these individual pledges. And then in the 1830s, we got a little bit of a change where we first started to see the idea of the temperance movement say, hey, we're pretty successful at this. So why don't we now start to push for the idea of maybe some legal changes? So they started with some local options where where you could, the first local options were passed in the 1830s and 1840s, where individual uh, municipalities or counties could choose to uh, outlaw alcohol. And so those were becoming... By the way, are more- those the blue laws that we're told about? I mean, I, I vaguely remember this from American history courses. That- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've heard the term blue laws, too, and I'm not exactly sure if that's... Okay. If that, I, I don't know the answer, James. I, I apologize. That's all right. But... but uh, so, so these local options be, began, began in the 1830s, 1840s. And then in the 1850s, they thought, well, what about we push for some state level? So, so Maine became the first state level prohibition in 1851. And once Maine prohibited at the state level, you had about 13 other states join them in the next few years in the 1850s and early 60s. But those were statutory prohibitions. They were not constitutional. And, and they, they, they were often repealed back and forth, back and forth, because a new legislature would come in and then and then they could just, you know, with the wave of a hand or, or a vote, uh, repeal those. So action and reaction. As in yeah. So, so by the 1860s, there were only a handful of states that had the, the state level uh, prohibitions in, in place. Uh, it, so, so then so then they thought, well, why don't we try for constitutional prohibition at the state level? So in the 1880s, that was the push was. State, a constitutional amendment to a state would be harder to get, but it would also be harder to repeal. These statutory ones were going back and forth. Uh, so in the 1880s, most states had a constitutional convention where they looked at you know, the question of adding an amendment to outlaw alcohol, uh, and they did not pass. Only only a small handful, I think three, maybe four states actually passed a constitutional prohibition in the 1880s. So then the temperance movement thought, well, that's not working. Let's go back to local options. Let's push for local options. So the 1890s, they pushed for local options very successfully. Local options were becoming, uh, you know, blanketing the country. And then in in the early 1900s, the local options were becoming popular. And then then they started thinking, well, now you know we can maybe we can move towards some more state prohibitions. And then they did have a couple more. But World War One, that was the real turning point that really changed the Overton window in this in this case. In World War One, uh, the argument was, well, we can't divert these these corn and this wheat and these into alcohol because we need them for the for the troops. And, and it wasn't just the United States; there were prohibitions all over the world. Uh, countries were prohibiting alcohol temporarily in most cases during during World War One. So that's what pushed us then, where you saw massive, like twenty six states adopted their own state level prohibitions between 1914 and 1918. So by by the time the prohibition amendment starts being voted on by the states in 1918, the vast majority, like maybe two thirds of the states had a prohibition in place. Maybe it was even, might've been three quarters of the states had a prohibition in place. And then it becomes much easier. Well, if our state's prohibiting, then of course we should be in favor of, of the federal prohibition as well. And, and so federal prohibition was was passed very rapidly. Uh, the states just bang, 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 bang. Uh, within a year, three quarters of the states had passed it. 
and uh, and then in January 17, 1920 is when. So they passed it a year before, and they gave them a year to, to try to allow the the economics in terms of the brewers and the distillers to have a year to you know prepare, and then and then uh, 1920 prohibition goes. So that sounds like they're exploiting an important thing that was popular. Um, they had extra leverage about uh, uh, about alcohol prohibition, and it seems that the and that they had already been testing these things to demonstrate that it's popular in a number of states already. So when it came time to to for this uh, this amendment to the to the Constitution, like they had some good cases to show that this thing is really popular. But it seems that the overreach that they made was on that question of intoxicating. Uh, uh, intoxicating liquors, as in if people thought it was just distilled spirits and not beer and wine, and you got rid of beer and wine, it seems like you took it, took it a step too far. Was that the case? I, I, think, that, I think that's a fair statement. So, so they, they intentionally made the prohibition amendment say the prohibition of intoxicating liquors. That was that was intentional because they, they, some people had pushed the, the real big dries. They said, no, it should say the, the, uh, that we should get rid of alcoholic beverages because everybody knows what an alcoholic beverage is. But what's an intoxicating liquor? So, so the idea was that, that they might be able to get more votes that were maybe on the fence to go in favor of, oh, I'm against intoxicating liquors. Uh, liquor is more unpopular than alcohol. But they banned well, yeah, alcohol, because, not liquor. Yeah. Because you can, yeah, you, know, you could be somebody who who likes to drink beer and wine and is is against intoxicating liquor. So so that that made it more palatable for the public to vote when they came down to these constitutional conventions to vote for the prohibition of intoxicating liquors. And then the Volstead Act uh, defines intoxicating liquors as zero point five percent. And I think a lot of people were uh, a little surprised at that. They thought, what? I, we were, I thought we were voting for the prohibition of intoxicating liquors and beer's not intoxicating. I mean, of course, that's you know, what people might be, might be thinking. Uh, and I think the people were. So, so yeah, I, they, they may have overreached there. And, and it could be that if they had defined intoxicating liquors as anything over, let's say, you know, 12%, which would allow for, for water, 15 or whatever would allow for wine, uh, you know, maybe prohibition would have been more durable. Jason, are there any broader lessons that, that we think we should learn from this experience of legal or of uh, prohibition and relegalization? Yeah, I, I think I think that the the temperance, the whole temperance movement had a, had an interesting way of going about it. You know, don't don't shoot for your final goal. Take a gradualist approach. Yeah, the the the, uh, the this anti saloon league they had basically said this. They said, I think I have a quote here. Let me let me read it here. They said. A proponent of municipal prohibition could become an advocate of county prohibition, then an advocate of statewide prohibition, and finally an advocate of national constitutional prohibition, thinking that basically small victories can lead to bigger ones. Take this gradualistic approach. So, you know, if, if your end goal is to move to 10 and we're at four right now, uh, maybe you should shoot for getting to five and then to six and then to seven, because it's going to be a lot easier to get to 10 when you're moving from seven or eight than it is moving from four to 10. And, and so this is what the temperance movement was, was very intentionally uh, doing, starting s- small and then working toward their final goal of, uh, of prohibition. 
I certainly don't support the end result, but I think it is an interesting lesson in terms of in terms of policy. Well, let's talk about some more of the politics here, because um, again, we showed that uh, it, uh, between the Great Depression and um, um, and the non-compliance, like re-legalization was popular again. And they tested the waters with re-legalization of beer, and it was popular. And this was something that the Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. Like, how much of his popularity was due to to this early victory? I mean, he's the only president that we've elected more than twice. <laughs> yeah, well, well I, th I think that a lot of Roosevelt's popularity was 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 gained from this recovery that we saw that began shortly after he took office. He takes office on March 4th. Uh, beer gets legalized and uh, you know, closes down the banks. There's a bank holiday and you know, does some reforms uh, and, and beer gets legalized. Uh, the law passes on March 22nd, goes into effect in April. The economy starts to take off in late March, April, May, June, July. Uh, you get a, a, a 57 percent increase in industrial production and a 60 percent increase in manufacturing employment during this four month period. During these four months, the economy rose about 60 percent. Now, it's coming from a low base. That's part of why it can do that, because you say, well, how can a company, if the economy rose 60 percent today from 25 trillion to 40 trillion? That's not going to happen. right? But when you're when you're at a low base, when you have 25 percent unemployment, uh, it's easier to grow quickly, but, th but those numbers are astounding. I mean, when I say astounding, I mean, if you look at any other four-month period in the history of our country, the next biggest growth, this again was 60%, six or, is, about, is about 20%. So this is like by a factor of three, the most incredible four-month expansion in this nation's history. And, and I think that that was something that, that made Roosevelt look like a magician in a sense that well, he, he was, to his credit, he did some things that were right. Um, some of the, the financial reforms that he engaged in, he brought confidence back, you know, to the country, which is very important. Psychology is a very important part of the economy. As, and and, and bringing mean, it back, feels very different to be an economy that is, uh, that is cutting jobs left and right than one that is adding jobs left and right. So, so to his to his credit, he he was he he came in and it was like a light switch in terms of a in terms of a regime change that that brought different expectations. Uh, couple that with some some uh, banking reforms and beer legalization, and you get this four month uh, boom. Now, unfortunately, the story doesn't end there, as we know. Uh, then then uh, Roosevelt uh, other New Deal policies were far less. Um, successful, good. I don't know what the right word I want to use here is, but, but its effect uh, upon the economy was not as positive. In fact, it's like negative. Okay, I, so, so for example, the probably the, the, the biggest blunder, uh, which, which just derails this recovery that, that is occurring from March through July is the National Industrial Recovery Act. The National Industrial Recovery Act was, it was passed in June, um, but it really goes into effect starting August 1st. And what this does is it, well, it does a couple of things. It, it requires firms to, to engage in basically cartel. They get together with all the other firms in their industry and they draw up a code of fair competition 
And this code can have things like production quotas and price fixing. In exchange for that, they had to raise their wages. They had to, okay, raising wage. If you're an economist, you, you understand that, that raising wages at a time of 20 or 25% unemployment is just going to make the unemployment issue worse. So they had to dramatically raise their wages and they had to cut hours. Uh, they were trying to get work sharing so we could share jobs by having, uh, you know, let's not let people work more than 30 hours and we can create three jobs where there were previously two. So, so that these, these, uh, labor provisions of the National Industrial Recovery Act and these cartel provisions. Of course, cartels. I mean, a production quota. You want to you want to reduce output at a time when you have twenty five percent unemployment. The Great Depression doesn't make much sense. Uh, but so so the so after the NIRA gets enacted, which really starts on August one, is when you get these these things really being enacted. The economy goes into a four month downturn from August to December nineteen thirty three. That, that is sharper than the Great Recession downturn in 2007 to 2009. In other words, this four months, the economy fell more than it fell in the 18-month recession that we think of as kind of one of the second biggest downturns in our history. So, so this, this little depression of late 1933 just total, totally derailed. Had that not of had the NIRA not have been enacted and some of the other policies that Roosevelt did were also not, not great. Um, I, you know, the economy was on a, on a tra- growth trajectory where it could have seen recovery if they had just sort of left it alone with the financial reforms and the beer legalization, just left it alone. We might've had, we might not be calling it the great depression today. You know, it, we don't, we call it the great depression because it lasted from 1929 until 1941. Uh, and we, we might just call it the, the, the depression of 29 to 33. We might just call it the downturn. The reason that the depression was great, uh, meaning big, not great in a good way, is because of how long it lasted. And, and, the, and some of the New Deal policies were good, but there were some that definitely made uh, very little sense and, and made the depression great in the sense of long, large, and bad. And uh, I mean, you'd think that like how the economy feels really matters. And so there should be political consequences for doing things that help the economy and doing things that hurt the economy. And it seems like uh, um, like the actual practical effects just did not matter as much in this circumstance, whereas you can re-legalize beer. It's good for the economy. He, it was popular anyway. He got credit for that. But you do these other things that just you know, you can say that they're here to improve the economy. I mean, it was about increasing wages for the American worker and, and rationalizing production or, or whatever. And he also gets seems to get credit for that. Again, he's the only president that we um, uh, that that we elected more than twice. Uh, so, like, did the effect of policies matter that much to the popularity? Yeah, you know, I mean, presidents are always so good at spinning things and saying. You know, it's not my policy's fault. It's that people aren't following it, or that there's not enough enforcement of it, or it's the other party's fault for not supporting it. Or there's always some boogeyman out there. And and Roosevelt and and, and I don't mean this just all politicians are are very good at trying. And but he was able to do it successfully to say that look, this this policy was was the right policy. Uh, you know. It, the fact that the economy is not doing well is not because of this policy. It's, you know, I inherited a, a great depression and 25% unemployment and things have gotten better. They did get better. 
they got a lot better and then they got they got worse again and, and they, they kind of just sort of stagnated. But uh, but certainly things were not as bad as they were in February of 33 before Roosevelt uh, took over. Uh, but he, but my point is he got a lot of goodwill from that from those that four month recovery. You know, once once you fall in love, you're in love for life in a sense. You know, it's, it's people people really fell for Roosevelt, and and uh, they they tended to stick with him for the most part. So is the lesson the the important takeaway here for the Overton window that if we want better economic policy, more people have to learn economics. Well, I'd always be in favor of that. <laughs> of, uh, economics professor yeah. wants more people to study economics. Yes, man bites dog. Right? <laughs> that's, that's not that's not going to be a headline. That's that's dog bites man. Exactly. Um, yes, of, of, of course. I, I think a lot of people know economics. They just don't know that they know economics because they don't know what economics is. A lot of people think that that economics is is like money and the it's more finance, but economics is about decision making. And we're all economists. You know, we all think about about costs and benefits in our own lives. And and, and economics is really just the idea of, of seeing the whole picture and understanding the whole picture and, and considering the whole picture and thinking about how 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 decisions have have costs and decisions have benefits. And you need to to, to acknowledge both of those. We focus so much on just just one side or the other. And that's what economics really tries to do is to, is to focus on both the costs and the benefits. Don't go into it so blindly and say, oh, this policy is, is, is the end-all, be-all, greatest thing. There's no such thing. Or this policy is the worst thing to ever happen. Again, that's not the way we, want, we would think about economics. Jason, thank you for helping us understand how to better shift the Overton window. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.